As you're turning to the 31st book of Isaiah, I wanted to continue on a, a couple of thoughts concerning freedom. Since I thought this was a good day to talk about freedom and Neil's lesson, and certainly if that lesson did not touch you, I'm not sure you can be reached. There is freedom that the world offers. And that freedom is short-lived. It's temporary. It has no lasting effect. But then there's freedom in Christ. That has eternal implications. The freedom in Christ does not give you license. Freedom in Christ, like freedom that we have as a nation, comes with responsibility. And the responsibilities of a Christian are sometimes daunting. It is hard to live the Christian life. Make no mistake about it. We're not promised an easy ride. We're not promised anything in this life. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And we've said this on many occasions before. If you're not being persecuted for the cause of Christ, you're not doing something right. Because every day and in every way, the Christian life should put you out in front of people and should put you in, if you will, harm's way. What are you doing with your freedom? Are you taking your liberty in Christ for granted? This is what happened to the people that Isaiah is talking about in this portion of the book of Isaiah. Now, you'll notice as we go through chapter 31, 32, 33, 34, and 35 over the coming weeks that this is all going to culminate in chapter 36. Chapter 36 is the crescendo of this portion of prophecy that Isaiah is talking about. And in these chapters that we've talked about last week, this week, weeks before, we've talked about individual responsibility. We've talked about familial responsibility, the responsibilities of a family, the responsibilities of a society, as well as the responsibilities of a nation. And these are the themes that Isaiah talks to in these chapters. Dependency. Who do we depend on? Do we depend on man? That's what the Hebrew nation had done. They had depended on man. Give us a king. So that we can be like everybody else. God does not want us to be like everybody else. He wants us to be different. The Hebrew nation did not depend on God as a nation. In their familiar relationships, in their individual relationships, in their national relationships with God, they did not act as God would have them act. We see that from the book of Joshua and Judges. We see that all the way up to now. They married against how God had commanded them to marry. They did not do the things that God had told them to do. Each went his own way. Each was righteous. Every man was righteous in his own eyes. And so as we look at the comparisons in chapter 30 and from last week, chapter 30 and chapter 31, 
this carries over into, into this week's lesson in chapter 31. Woe to you who go down into Egypt. Woe to those who depend on someone or something other than God. What does man depend on today? Now, we, can talk, we can talk about what they're depending on now, what they're putting their reliance in. What does man put his reliance in today? What does, what does modern man, modern woman, what do, we put our, what do they put their reliance on or put their reliance in? In what they want. They put their reliance in, in money. They put their reliance on technology. What else do they put their reliance on? And all of these things in and of themselves are not bad. Technology is not a bad thing. Most of us use technology to some extent every day. It's not a bad thing. It's when you come to rely on it more than you do God. You all know how I feel about social media. If I could, I'd I'd turn it all off. It has, along with the Internet, some very positive things that go on with it. The ability to help people. The ability to do things that we've never been able to do before with technology, with, with social media. But there is a dark side. And there is a side that is an active, from my understanding at least, and my, my feeling on it is, it's an active agent of the devil. It's used to divide us. It's used to separate us from God. And we have to be careful. We have to be eternally vigilant when we handle these things. You know, it used to be if you were mad at somebody or you wanted to write a letter, you'd write a letter to the newspaper or you'd write a letter to that person. Now you can spew your venom and you can spew your hate in seconds on some social media platform. When it comes to dependency, dependency should be on God. The Hebrew nation had not learned that. The Hebrew nation was still stumbling around in the dark, blind. And now they're going to come up, as we'll see in chapter 36, because all of this now from 31, really from 30, 30 to 35, is all preparatory. Isaiah is going to tell them exactly what's going to happen. He is prophesying in these five chapters prior to 36. He's prophesying what's going to come about. And as you read chapter 36, after you've read these five chapters, you will see all of that come out. You will see all that teased out in the conversations that they have. Putting your trust in the arm of flesh. It's what Isaiah is talking about here. The Jews were trusting in others other than God. They were trusted in the Egyptians. Woe to you that go down to Egypt for help. And stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. And in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel and neither seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise. And will bring evil and will not call back his words. But will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. There is judgment coming, in this case, to Sennacherib and the house of Assyria. There's judgment coming to him. And that judgment comes in 36 and 37, where the judgment comes to him and it says that God will strike him. There will be one that will come with a sword that is not of this world. And God will judge. Now, the Egyptians are men, verse 3. The Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen shall fall down, and they shall all fall together. For thus the Lord has spoken to me, 
as the lion roars and the young lion over its prey. He will not be afraid of their voice, nor will be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down from Mount Zion and for its hill. And so in this corner we have the Assyrians, led by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He is, for all intents and purposes, as, as, we, as we find, as we read about him, he's a very weak, ephemeral man. But he is extremely wicked. He is not a god. And he is not God. He is only a man. Proud, cruel, contemptuous of his foes, blasphemous toward God. Read chapter 36. But he will fall. In the other corner, we have Jehovah, the creator of the universe, God, not man, strong, everlasting, eternal, Isaiah 57, 15. He is never weary. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never stumbles. He is the creator of the universe. He knows no sickness. He never loses his strength. And if you remember from the lesson this morning, he does not think like you or I. He is God. We are his creation. He is far above us. His ways are not our ways. He is our creator. He is a shadow from the heat. To his people, he is refreshment to the weary. And he is a helper to those in need. Like birds flying together, verse 5, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver. Passing over, he will preserve. Those are God's words. And God has never lied. But in verse 6 comes the answer to the problem. For the Hebrew nation, the answer for what ails every man, woman, and child, every person, every family, every nation, return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Return to him. He will bring evil. He will not call back his words. His judgments are final. But there is divine Restitution. There is divine relief in return. God in this opening verses reveals his wrath against sin. But with this revealing of his wrath against sin, he offers pardon. And all the people need to do is return to him. What will happen in that day? What will happen when the people return to him and return to the obedience Return from their disloyalty. For in that day, verse 7, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin which your own hands have made for yourselves. What idols are there in your life that keep you from being the Christian that you need to be? You need to put those idols away before it's eternally too late. There's freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. Just as a nation, just as an individual, just as your family, freedom 
has a cost. Freedom in Christ has a cost. Some are not willing to pay that cost. Some are not willing to put themselves under the dependency of a loving God. Some will go it alone. Some will say, I know better. Just like the Hebrews. And like the Hebrews, they'll go away into slavery. Slavery to sin. And the end will not be a pleasant one. Return to him. Assyria will fall, verse 8, by the sword, not of man. And the sword, not of mankind, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young man, his young men shall be forced labor. Chapter 36, chapter 37, we know what happens. We know what happens to Sennacherib. His army is to put, put to flight, 188,000 killed. He returns to Babylon, where he is slain by his two sons while he's worshiping his God. All this predicted by the prophetic voice of Isaiah. He shall cross over to his threshold for fear, and his princess shall be afraid of the banner whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And so a disloyal people, a disloyal attitude, but a contemplation of a return to God. The spiritual consequences of which, if you return to God, is they had returned to God. The spiritual consequences would have been their ability to worship God, their ability to tear down those altars, their ability to move forward in a holy and acceptable manner, destroying and putting those idols behind them. There's time for repentance, but the time is now. Putting it off only leads to more struggling and more troubles. The vanquished will flee away. How many times have we seen on television someone that has committed a crime trying to flee from law enforcement, trying to flee away, most often to no avail? The vanquished in the annals of human history and various battles that you can read about, the vanquished have fled in the face of the victors, have fled in the face of the victorious. Some have fled to escape God. Who can you think of that fled from the face of God because he did not want to do what God told him to do? He was a super patriot and a sorry prophet. Jonah. The super patriot. But he was a sorry prophet. Fled from God. But we know that you cannot escape God. You cannot go anywhere. The psalmist said that that if I go to the tops of the mountains, you're there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, if I descend into Sheol, into the grave... You're there. The guilt of those who flee from God is ever before their faces. But those who return to God and reflect on their sin and ask for forgiveness of those sins, God has promised in various ways throughout the Bible to remove those sins and remember them against us no more. He removes them from as far as the east is from the west. Sins are hidden from his face. Sins are put behind his back, never to be seen again, and cast into the depths of the sea. Psalm 65, 3, 
Psalm 103, 12, Psalm 51, 9, and Micah 7, 19. God will forgive sin, but only if we ask for it, only if we repent of what has angered him or what has put us far from him, remembering that we are the ones who go away from God. It's not him who leaves, it's us who depart. Thus the impetus to return is on our part, not on God's. But like the prodigal son, the father is ready to receive us home. And the prodigal son is an interesting is an interesting story from all of the standpoints except you never hear anyone talk about how the father felt. The father is just there. He's there for the son who stays. He's there for the son who came home. But no one ever thinks about how he felt. How he felt when his son asked for his portion of his inheritance and his son left. How did that father feel? We know how he felt when he came back home. That's written for us in in Holy Writ. But how did he feel all of those years when that son was gone? Not knowing where he was. We know where he was because we have the benefit of being able to read it. But how did that father feel? Not knowing whether his son was dead or alive. Making something of his life or living in ruin. Spending his money in riotous living. How did he feel? That's how the father feels when we leave. When we depart from him. It breaks his heart. And he longs for us to return. So, chapter 31. We find in chapter 31 that the sins of the people are repeated, even as we move into chapter 32. In chapter 32, the one or the first, not the first, but one of the first of the many messianic prophecies that Isaiah will put forth. Given all of the things that the Hebrew nation has been through, given all of the struggles that they've had, given all of their departures from God and their restoration, given all of those things that happens, he begins the chapter with a king who reigns in righteousness. Behold, chapter 1, or chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, chapter, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. When I was working on my doctoral dissertation, I had the opportunity to live in Peru for two years. And I worked in the Atacama Desert. It is the driest desert in the world. They measure the rainfall on that, in that desert. They measure rainfall in millimeters per year. It is drier than the Sahara. And there were many times working in that desert environment that I looked for a shadow where I could get some relief from the heat. And if you've never worked anywhere in an environment that's that close to the equator, T-shirts, which would be what we would normally wear when we're out in the field, T-shirts would not last more than about two or three months because the intense sun down there causes them to just come apart. 
And you'd go back to your room at the end of the day and you'd go to take your T-shirt off and it'd just go into 15 or 20 different pieces. It'd just tear, it'd just tear right off. Things, are not, things don't last because of the intensity of the heat or the intensity of the sun down there. And many times working in the tombs, I would look for some place that I could just hide from the sun for a shadow where I could just for a moment feel some cool air or even some hot air that would cool in the shade. There's no shade to be found. And I thought about this as I read this. You know, many, many people have never been in, in that sort of circumstance where you're looking and you're so far removed from anything that provides any kind of shade to you at all. And I wonder if that's why we read this, that it doesn't have any impact on us. Because when we're, when we're working in our backyards or we're working out on the car or we're working in the garage or something and the weather becomes hot and humid, what do we do? We go inside. It's easy. Go inside, get your cold drink, sit down on the couch for a few minutes and cool off. But in the desert of sin, there's no relief. There's no shadow. And so there's no, there's no comfort. But God says here, he will be a hiding place from the wind, a cover from the tempest, a dry place, a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dimmed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Refuge. Christ is the refuge that we seek. We come to him for refuge. Those who came to him in the days of his flesh came to him to have him cure them, to have him touch them, to be close to him. Many were relieved. Examples from Luke and Matthew. But in a deeper sense, he became a refuge for us after he died and after he ascended. He was a refuge for those people who who could touch him physically. But blessed are those who have not seen him and still believe. And so in his ascension, in his departure from this earthly domain, he he was with them and he will continue to be with us. His death, his resurrection, changed minds. Changed hearts, changed spirits. They went at his command to do things possibly that they would have never done when he was around. They trusted him. They trusted in his word. They gave themselves to him. They leaned on him. They learned from him. And they were lost in him. Not lost, lost, but lost in him, lost in who Christ was. And they found out that they were better because of him.
in a deeper and fuller sense, he was that shadow of a rock in a dry and weary land. Rock of ages, cleft for me. What's the next line? Let me hide myself in thee. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Glory divine. But you know, as much as Christ is our refuge, he is our rock, he is our hiding place, it is incumbent upon us to be a refuge for others. All of the things that Christ did, not the miracles, not the things that only Christ could do, but all of the things that he did to his fellow man, we need to do as Christians. Is there someone out there that's hurting? Is there someone out there who needs a shoulder to lean on? Kindliness. Hope. Others need our help. And maybe you need someone's help. You can be a refuge to others. You can be a help to others. The schemes of the schemer, verse 7, are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speak justice. Will you stand up for someone else? Will you be someone's refuge? You know, in these verses, Isaiah talks about being disabled by sin. He talks about being restored, but he talks about being disabled by sin. I found four directions that we suffer as a consequence of our sin. There's spiritual perception, continued disobedience, continued estrangement from God. The light of Christ becomes dimmer and dimmer as we move away from him. And only by moving back toward him does the light come back. Reading the Bible, recognition of a divine presence, a divine voice in our lives, that freedom that we've talked about, making choices that are wise, listening to the utterance of divine truth, the stammering tongue will speak. But a generous man devises generous things. There's a stark contrast between those who are a refuge for others those who are aware of their sin and constantly before God asking forgiveness, staying in the light, walking in the light. Generosity. Generosity, he shall stand. Verse 8. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Terrible. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare and gird sackcloths on your, on your waists. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. 
Oh, the land of my people will come up with thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in this joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and the towers will become lairs forever, a joy for wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation... Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the oxen and the donkey. And so what we see here is we see that there is a time that is coming when the cities will be vacant. The cities will be deserted because all of the people have gone into captivity. The Assyrians have come. They've taken everyone away. This is what will come on the people because of their sin. But there is a remnant. There is a return. There is a restoration. And we see that the thorns and the briars will come. The palaces and the cities will be vacant. But when that spirit is poured out from on high, the wilderness will become a fruitful field. Before that, the vintage is spoiled. We've talked about this as a, this is a, 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 a comparative to uh, the vines that yield grapes, and the vines will not yield any grapes. There will be nothing to eat. There will be nothing to drink. The fruitful field will be counted as a forest. In one portion, a few chapters back, it talked about the cedars of Lebanon becoming a field. Now, this field is counted as a forest again. Because of the one who comes, the spirit that is poured out upon us from on high. And so as he finishes up chapter 32, he talks about these peaceable fruits of righteousness, these peaceable fruits. And so righteousness in the end ensures both peacefulness, possession and tranquility. As the people are reconciled to God. That's, that's what happens when this spirit is poured out from on high. The people are reconciled with God. The peace that passes understanding. A blissful, satisfying rest into the soul. Hope in the human spirit. There's also that inward and abiding rest. We're not promised rest in this life. We're promised Temptation, we're promised that the devil is going to try to do everything he can to separate us from God. But there is that inward and abiding rest, that inward and abiding hope, that spiritual harmony that comes with that reconciliation to God. And in the end, in the last verse, a home in a quiet resting place. And so chapter 32 ends talking about this this fruitful labor. Blessed are they that sow beside all the waters. All the desolation, all the destruction has ended when this spirit is poured out from us on us from on high. Labor, 
is its own reward. Blessed are those, it says, who are engaged in this type of labor. And this is particularly true for the Christian as a workman or a work person. We have in our hands the very, very best seed to sow. We have in our hands the gospel. And we are to take that gospel and we are to sow that seed. That is the very best seed that a person can sow. It has taken God centuries, millennium, to prepare. That seed has been purchased with the blood and the tears of our Savior. And it is exquisitely adapted for a soil that is intended to produce harvest. So what would we do with it? We have the soil. We water it. We plant. We do what we can to spread the word, the gospel. There is the soil of youth. Those are the soils. These are the soils that we're talking about. There's the soil of youth. So many times today, youth, the youth that we see around us are inattentive, frivolous, unstable. But they are tender-hearted and trustful. And it's good soil to plant this invaluable seed that we have to sow. And there is soil that has been afflicted. There are those who are in need of a spirit of softness, impressionable hearts that need words of comfort, that need words of exhortation, and that need warning that their lives are not like God wants them to be. Soil, ready for that valuable seed. And there is the productive soil of poverty. The common people heard Jesus gladly. You know, Jesus didn't come to talk to the aristocrats. He didn't come to talk to the rich. He came to talk to people who worked for a living. He came to the poor. He came to the destitute. He came to those who had the broken spirits. To the poor, the gospel was preached. And in these times which we live, the poor, comparatively in the world, are rich. But they're not rich in the things they need to be rich in. They need to be rich in faith and hope. And we need to plant that seed. So oftentimes the poor are denied. But the treasures of truth and the blessedness of the kingdom of God are commodities that they need more so than most. The difference between good and evil, between virtue and vice, will be confounded by those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And until we understand that we are laborers in the field and that we have a seed that is priceless that we must sow, to our youth, to those who are afflicted, and those who are poor. We will not be the kind of servants that we need to be. And so as we move to chapter 33, and we'll, we've just got a few minutes, and so we'll, we'll talk just briefly in kind of an introductory man, manner. 
remember that 30, 31, 32 through 35, or 35, yeah, up to 36, these are all prophecies that Isaiah is giving um, to the people. Woe to you who plunder, verse 1 of chapter 33. Woe Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. To you who deal treacherously, though you have not dealt treacherously, cease your plundering. You will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, then they will deal treacherously with you. Sin is here often found in a very aggravated form. Those who plunder, but have never been plundered. Those who deal treacherously with others, although they've never been dealt with treacherously. When they cease plundering, they will be plundered. And when they make an end of dealing treacherously, then they will be dealt with treacherously also. But then Isaiah offers a plea in verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. And we talked about this a little bit last week, the week before. God is waiting. And sometimes in silence and in the quiet of the night, we wait on God. We wait on him through prayer. We wait on him to answer our prayers. And we find sometimes when the morning light comes that maybe that prayer has not been answered. Maybe that's not something that God wants for us to have. But we need to be gracious to him. Wait on him. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in a time of trouble. Everyone needs that arm to lean on, that arm of God. And we have God to lean on as Christians. And he is our salvation in time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people will flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations will be scattered. And your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts, and he shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And so beginning next week, we'll start in verse 6 there, and we'll talk a little bit about wisdom and knowledge and the strength of and, and the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the strength of our salvation. Good Lord willing, we'll see you then.